appreciate you being here this evening. I asked, I was talking to someone, it's ironic, I was talking to someone about this on Sunday. I asked someone today, I was like, how's your day today? They go, well, it was a Monday. It's, I always say, they always say, you know, on Sunday, they're like, how's your day today? I'm like, well, it's a Sunday. <laughs> you know, of course, hey, yes, yeah, Sunday's the Lord's Day and Worship Day, but it seems like the majority of the headaches come from ministers on Sunday, and maybe that's appropriate, maybe it's not, but Pastor Larry's the one who told me that, so I'll just give that to you, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, I'm thrilled, honestly. I am truly thrilled that you decided to be here tonight and chose to be here. Uh, once you open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and I'd like you to uh, mark in your Bibles, if you would be willing, uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. I want to reference a, a very key passage in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. I want to share with you tonight tomorrow night and Wednesday night, what I believe, just personally, uh, has been some of the most dynamic and revolutionary material. It's been a revolutionary truth out of revelation in my life. And it's absolutely, completely, totally redefined um, the way that I viewed myself in, in relationship to Jesus Christ. And you would say, man, that's significant. Well, I can't tell you what this some of the studies we've been uh, studying, God has revealed to us. My wife even said that it's the best stuff she's ever, you know, the best sermon she ever uh, heard. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> you know, from a lot to say that. And it's just some of the, the truth we've been discovering has been fantastic. And I want to walk you through a little bit of that this evening. Sunday morning, we're looking tonight at a little bit what we looked at. The, uh, we looked at the first half of this Sunday morning, and we're going to look at the second half of this this evening. And Sunday morning in the first service, that was. Revelation obviously opens up with what we uh, understand as the prologue, uh, which is the word before the actual prophecy itself. In that, uh, in that uh, set of verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, you have John, which gives us in the first two verses three basic uh, understandings of the book of Revelation. The first is when you get in the book of Revelation, what you're getting into is a divine revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is being unveiled within this prophecy. That's the content. There's a number of things that take place. There's a number of significant events. There's a number of key things that have to be understood and embraced. But everything falls underneath the parameters and umbrella of Jesus Christ being revealed. That's what he said. First opening thing. Number two is that when you see Jesus unveiled, you also see that, number two, he is the point for your life. He is the, everything you see unveiled in him is, is the answer for whatever you're going through in your life. Jesus himself is the answer. The third thing that's re, uh, revealed in this, uh, these first two verses is also, the third thing is the perspective. So when I get into the book of Revelation and I see him for who he is, number two, I see that he's the answer for whatever I'm facing in my life. The third thing is, it changes the way that I live on a daily basis. It changes my perspective. Uh, an example of the perspective is given in the church of Smyrna, chapter 2 of Revelation. Jesus says, verse 9, I know your affliction and your poverty. And what's, of course, that's what they're going through. And yet, what's Jesus' perspective? Yet you are rich. Okay? See, somehow, the most drastic and horrific circumstances in our life, as we're going through those, Jesus changes our perspective of that whole thing. So he establishes three things in these first two verses of the prologue 
uh, the word before the prophecy. Number one, get in the book, it's about him. Number two, when you see him, you see the answer for your life. And number three, it changes your perspective. And if that takes place, verse three spills out of that and you have this blessing, which means you become the event by which his hand is unleashed in your world. That's the prologue. Uh, that's going to color everything we study, every, every uh, verse that we look at, that's going to color uh, what we're studying. Uh, you leave the prologue and you enter into verse 4, <clears throat> and you have an introduction. It's the, it's the introduction proper in the book. John is identifying himself as the writer or the conveyor of the prophecy. He didn't come up with it. It's not his content. He's not the author of it. In fact, that's established in the opening chapter. He says, hey, I was on the Isle of Patmos. You know, I've vanished there, you know, he said. And Jesus comes there. I hear this loud, this voice behind me like a trumpet. And it says, hey, John, write what you see down and send it to the seven churches. And it says there in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 how he turns around. And then verses 12 through 16 tells us what he sees. And, of course, he sees an unveiled Christ. Okay? And then he's carried away in the Spirit, and he writes down everything that he sees. So John is not the author of the Revelation. He is the writer. Okay? He's the conveyor of that. And he says this in the open, uh, opening verses. John, and, of course, being the writer, he addresses the recipients. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And as we looked at last night and found it significant... There were not just seven churches in the province of Asia. There were several others. Okay? There were several others. And these are just, uh, these, these churches happened to uh, uh, appear or they were located on the Roman postal route through this area. And some scholars suggest, and it's highly likely, that uh, they were to be the um, uh, starting points in which this uh, revelation was going to spread throughout uh, the area of Asia Minor and also through the Christian world of that day. Now, the, after the introduction, and John is identified as the writer, and you have the seven churches as the recipients, you have grace and peace. He says that grace and peace is extended to these seven churches. Okay? Grace is the idea of favor. Okay? That's the Hebrew concept behind grace. Uh, when grace is extended by God to us, he's showing us favoritism, and we're really going to get in that tomorrow, uh, uh, tomorrow, so I don't want to spoil it tonight, but grace is being extended by God. He's showing favoritism to us. Also, peace, which is the absence of the havoc of war, but not just outside. It's that, that kind of chaos, literally, he brings that to peace within our lives, okay? When he sheds peace abroad in us. In relationship with God, we receive peace inwardly from him. So you have grace and peace that are extended from God to the seven churches. Now, what we're going to look at tonight is this third member of the triune God, okay, the third member of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit, as he's presented in this passage. And again, this is a presentation of God in Trinity form. And Trinity is the, Christ, is the term that we describe the Christian doctrine of one God in three persons. Okay? One God in three persons. And persons are talked about and referred to in the New Testament in terms of their function. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they're understood and described oftentimes in their function. Okay? They have one purpose and they have different functions within that purpose. In the salvation of man, God seeks to save man. Okay? Each person of the Godhead had a function in that salvation. We know obviously the function of Jesus because he came down and camped among us. Okay? He sweat, he sweated, sweat, sweated, sweated, is that plural? I'm horrible with English. You'd think I'd be better at this. He, he sweat, sweat, I had trouble Sunday morning with cactus. 
Is it cactus, cacti, cacti? Okay, let's move, let's move fast. Okay, he sweated. He, he experienced, uh, he experienced sweating like you and I experienced sweating. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we'll get to it one way or another. He experienced all the difficulties that you and I experienced. He got tired. We've been amazed at John in chapter 4 and, and he, how tired he was. And, and we knew that he experienced emotional stress and the, the sweating drops of blood. See, we know the function of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, because he literally lived among us. We also experience the function of the Holy Spirit because he's the one who reveals God to us. He lives within the confines of our body. We are a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And, of course, we know the function of the Father in the bringing the past and the initiating of all that God is doing in the plan of God. Okay? So you have one God and the functions of God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, in that Godhead. They're called the Trinity. Okay? Now, that Trinity language is mentioned at several points in the Bible. Uh, some of the more famous passages, or probably well-known, uh, would be the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's, that's another passage. This passage here in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 is also a Trinitarian passage in that you have the three persons of the Godhead represented or, 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 or better they were spoken of and they are given specific function in the passage and this is so significant I want to share it with you tonight. You have the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit as they are communicating, as they are extending grace and peace to these seven churches. And this is just fantastic. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the purpose is extending grace and peace to these seven churches. Okay? And it's representative, obviously, these seven churches are representative of you and I. Okay? God is going to send. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are extending grace and peace to us, and these churches are representatives of that. Now, what's interesting is, again, each member of the Godhead has a function in that. And this is so neat. Each member of the Godhead has a function in that. Okay? Tomorrow night and Wednesday night, we're going to look at the function of the Father and how He plays a role in extending grace and peace. Tonight, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit functions in extending us grace and peace. Now, if you were in the first service Sunday morning, we looked at the first half of this. There's two parts to the function of the Holy Spirit extending grace and peace to us. There's two parts to that. Okay, two parts. The first part we looked at Sunday morning, and it has to do with the Holy Spirit extending grace and peace. It takes the form of the Holy Spirit revealing and the Holy Spirit resourcing. Okay? Resourcing is really easy. Uh, the Holy Spirit is extending grace to the seven churches. The Greek word for grace is charis. What's interesting is when the grace is extended by the Holy Spirit, that word changes from charis to charisma. And we no longer translate it grace. We translate it gifts. Thus, the gifts of the Spirit. So grace extended by the Holy Spirit manifests itself in gifts. And what are the gifts? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, that's not your attributes. That's his attributes. And he's extending grace. See, God the Father is saying, this is the kind of lifestyle that I want you to live. And through the Holy Spirit, dumping grace on you to live the life you have been called to live. An element of self-control is, or an element of, of the grace of the Holy Spirit in my life, attribute of who he is living in me is self-control. 
He comes in my body and controls what I was never able to control. So the Christian comes to him, comes to God and says, Hey, I'm out of control. Would you move in my life and control what I never could control? See, see, the Christian comes to God and says, Hey, I'm not patient. Would you move in my life and display your patience in this situation? Isn't that fantastic? So grace, as it is extended by the Holy Spirit, manifests itself in gifts. Which is, again, that is consistent with the resource language that we talk about when we talk about the Holy Spirit resourcing us. See, obviously, you and I cannot live the life we've been called to live apart from God. If we could, we'd be into the law thing. Okay? But obviously, and Paul goes into this in books, such books like Galatians, that we cannot, live, uh, we cannot live the life that we've been called to live out of our own strength and our own abilities. So literally, the Holy Spirit is, is a guarantee. It is a, it is a resourcing. God himself is a resourcer in my life, enabling me to live the life I've been called to live. Okay? You're either stunned or shocked or maybe I shouldn't know. Okay? Resourcing element. The Holy Spirit is resourcing our lifestyle. Which, again, man, I want to encourage you. If you're out of control, guess who's in control? If you fly off the handle, you're flying off the handle. <laughs> I find it interesting. I don't want to go into this because we get other people want to look at tonight. I don't want to go into this too far, but I'm always amazed at teenagers. And, of course, teenagers are just smaller versions of us and most of the time better-looking versions of us. But they express, and they're honest also, maybe even more honest versions of us, they live this life like this, you know, the up-and-down thing. And they come home from camp and they have made decisions at the altar. They have, they have responded in an altar call. They're absolutely 100% serious. But they go home and six weeks later, what happens? Right back to the same thing. Well, you, you talk to them about it. And, uh, you know, that's a great opportunity we have. Hey, what happened? And, and you begin to hear words like this, which tell you a lot about what's going on. They say, well, I came home and I was doing great. And I, I was doing great for the longest period of time. And then my dad... You know how dads are, and yes, I do. Okay. Or it was my, my, my brother, or it was my sister, or my friend, or it was this issue right here, or it was my husband, or it was my wife, some issue, and they say, I just lost it. See, what would happen if you never had it? Wouldn't it be neat? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be neat if Christianity was less of what you do and who you are, but more about who he is? I mean, I need that, man. I need him like that. I need him to come down in my life and produce what is absolutely impossible for me to produce. I want my life to be a demonstration of who he is. I want to live under the constant domination and control and resourcing of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now you see that in the seven churches. You see that displayed in these seven churches. It's, it's, the, it's an aspect of the Holy Spirit. He resources man. Now, that's part one. Also a part of the first aspect of the Holy Spirit is not just resourcing, it's revealing. That's obvious. The Holy Spirit reveals God to man. You have the passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we know God by His Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals the deep things of God. Okay? We don't need to go into that. So the first aspect of the Spirit has to do with the Holy Spirit takes from God the Father, and he reveals that to man. Okay? The Holy Spirit takes from God the Father, and he, he reveals that to man. The second aspect, which is what I'm really, really wanting to look with you this evening, is the Holy Spirit takes from man, and he brings that within the Godhead. 
Now you have then this mediatory and in some way reciprocal um, function of the Holy Spirit. And it's also that's also made known in light of the passage. I found this significant. Everywhere I could find where it talked about in the, in the scriptures uh, the Trinity, it was always referred to as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's, how, that's the, kind of the first, second, third member of the Trinity. It was always presented like that, except for here. And in this passage, it's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder why that's the case. And again, it's consistent with what you're finding in the book of Revelation, that the Holy Spirit is the transitional, functional role in between God and man. Now, as we looked at, uh, as you begin to get into, and as we've looked at some of the grammar, the grammar supports that. The grammar of this passage uh, describes the Holy Spirit, and again, it says, grace and peace to you, and it, then he talks about the Father from him who is and is, uh, was and is to come. The Holy Spirit is described as from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, why does he say seven spirits? Okay? That, 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 that phrase, that grammatical phrase, seven spirits, is used four times in the book of Revelation. Okay? Four times in the book of Revelation. It's used here in this passage, Revelation 1-4. It's used in chapter 3, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. It's used in chapter 3, verse 1. It's used in chapter 4, verse 5. Verse 5 says, from the throne. Chapter 4, verse 5 says, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Happens here. The last time it appears in this book is in chapter 5, uh, verse the last, last half of verse 6, the beginning half talks about Jesus. He is uh, seen by John and described as looking as if he's a lamb been slain. And then the last half of that verse says, He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Now it's interesting, when you see the, this phrase, grammatical phrase, seven spirits of God, that's plural. Grammatically, you could walk away from this passage saying, well, hey, God the Holy Spirit is three, or I mean seven. <laughs> God the Holy Spirit is seven. Well, obviously, we know God the Holy Spirit is not seven. So why does he say seven spirits? Well, seven is not only always associated in this book, and you see it in chapter five there, he had seven horns and seven eyes. Seven is not always associated with the Holy Spirit, it's always associated with God, because seven is, is in the book of Revelation, God's number. And seven is a sign of completeness, and the sign of wholeness, even adequacy, okay? And it's interesting, that number is often contrasted with Satan's number. And Satan's number is six. He's just a little short. <laughs> he's just, he's not quite there. He's not all together. Isn't it fun to say that stuff? Okay? He's just, he just he's, he's incomplete. He's inadequate, okay? Uh, he's a mockery of who God is, Okay? So Satan is contrasted with God in the book of Revelation being inadequate, not complete, not full, and God, especially oftentimes the Holy Spirit, is a full, complete, adequate Spirit of God. Okay? Now, put this together. In our passage, chapter 1, verse 4, he's the complete, full, adequate Spirit 
seven, which is also linked with the seven churches in the province of Asia. And some scholars put this together and said, hey, A plus B equals C. Well, obviously, if there's more than seven churches in the province of Asia, I wonder why these seven were addressed. I wonder if this, the, the, word, or the number seven was specific and the seven churches were specific and represent the full totality, the wholeness of God's people. So the Holy Spirit is intimately linked with. He is the full, complete, adequate spirit for the, for the seven churches. And he's also the spirit that is, in our passage, before his throne. The word before, as I talked about Sunday morning, is the word for in the midst of. Um, the word before can be misleading. For instance, I'm standing before my wife. Okay? I'm not necessarily standing before him. I'm kind of catty corner, or kitty corner, however you say it here in, in the South. Okay? I'm catty corner from him. So technically you could say that I'm not before him. Well, that's not what that word means. The word doesn't mean like directly before. It, it, it gives the idea of being in the midst of or in the side of. So I stand before you this evening. That's what that word means. I'm standing in your midst. I'm standing in your presence. I'm standing in your side of. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is before the throne of God. Throne literally means the chief's chair. And you know what that is? Just like my wife, your, your wife has one of those in your home. Okay? It's the chief's chair. Come on, that was a little funny. Okay? It's the chief's chair. It's the place of authority, okay? So, and again, he's talking about the throne of God. So, now put this together. This is easy. The Holy Spirit, the complete, full, adequate Holy Spirit, who is adequate for the seven churches of Asia Minor and dwells in their midst, is also the same Holy Spirit in his completeness and his fullness who is enveloping the throne of God, okay? He is the mediator. He is working in both. He is working in the, amongst God's people and he's working amongst the Godhead. The first aspect that we looked at Sunday morning was that the Holy Spirit is revealing God to man, and we have umpteen passages on that, and the Holy Spirit is resourcing man, and we have umpteen passages on that. Holiness is only possible through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Okay, that's the first aspect. Tonight, I want to look with you at this second aspect, and it's so neat. This is brand new. It's probably old, old hat to you guys, old news to you guys, but it was new to me. It's that the Holy Spirit not only plays a function from God to man, but the Holy Spirit literally plays a functional role of taking man literally into the Godhead itself. I thought this was interesting. You pick up this idea really strong. Now I ask you to mark um, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. You pick up this, this concept in the book of Genesis really strong. It says in chapter 1, verse 26, and we're going to look at the first half of that verse. Verse 26, just the first half, so you can call it A. It's, uh, this is after the creation. Uh, God's created all kinds of things, and he's created uh, animals, he's created you know, uh, water, all this stuff, okay? Um, you know, all the details, you can read through it. He comes down to verse 26, and it says, Then God said, Let us make man... In our image, in our likeness. Okay? And then it talks about rule and authority. But if you go into verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So mankind, male and female, were created in the image of God. Now, there's a couple different ways that you can understand this. Okay? 
and there's a couple ways in which you, we have as, as, as you know, as a, uh, you know, I guess an evangelical church have understood the image of God. Some suggest that the image of God is a stamping within who I am. That God created me and I am created in the image, therefore, something in due to my createdness, kind of like stamped like a marble in a jar, I've been created in God's image. I tend to personally shy away from that because I think my identity as man in his own image is not something that's apart from him, but is created in intimate contact with him. Therefore, image of God is not so much marble in a jar stuff but man was created, think about this, man was created with the capacity, not the capacity in terms of ownership, but the capacity or possibility of responding in relationship to God in a way that no other creature was created. You can be, think about this, you were created to be in a relationship with God. You were created in His image. Think about this. Think of the weight of this. You were created to be in relation, you have a relational capacity with God in which none other of God's creation, which is obviously why I don't buy the eighth thing, <laughs> okay? And looking at people, there are examples, and, and it's, you know, you, you can struggle with that. But, biblically, biblically, I'm telling you, biblically, we do not have an affinity with apes, <laughs> okay? We were not, hey, apes were not created in the image of God. Okay? We were created in the image of God. You and I have a relational capacity with God that, get this, not even the angels have. The angels weren't created in His image. You and I were created in His image. Now, that has to do with several things. Obviously, people have said, oh, yeah, image of God. Well, hey, what that means is, is I have the ability to have self-awareness. I have the ability for speech. I have the ability for, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, articulating, uh, and I don't do that well, <laughs> so I don't talk about that one. But I have the ability for love, okay? I have, the, uh, you know, those kinds of qualities. Obviously, hey, that's true. But see, you, you understand the whole idea of image of God stuff is not just like abilities. Well, yeah, I can walk in God. I'm created in, in, in His image, so God walks on two feet, so I must walk in, in two, with two feet, you know? That's not what he's talking about. Again, it comes back to relationship. There's an involvement. Um, there's an involvement. God has created me. Now, this is heavy. But God has created me to respond to him in such a way that there is an involvement that takes place in his very person. For instance, God is Trinity. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in substance. Okay, three in person. And there's a relationship there. They're talked about as obviously three persons, but they are one. Read you a passage of scripture just very quickly. In John's Gospel, and you don't have to turn here because I'll just read this just really quickly. But in Jesus' prayer, he says stuff like this, which happens to be John chapter 17, if you want to look it up later, verse 20. My prayer, get this, listen to this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. <laughs> See, here's the, here's the concept. Do you realize, and what, uh, I thought of it this way, and I think this is just a neat way to think about it, that I always looked at 
See, I've always looked at the image of God kind of thing and, 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 and God giving us stuff like free will, okay? the ability for choice, that kind of stuff. I always looked at that kind of relational involvement, God giving me literally participation. In who, and you see this at continual points throughout the Scriptures, that this relational participation in who He is, I always looked at God as kind of like He put limitations on Himself, you know, giving us, you know, not dictating what we do, but love, which gives choice. Hey, I give my wife the choice of loving me. I don't dictate to her. I give my son the choice of responding to me. I don't dictate him. And I always looked at because God is so infinite and powerful, he had to limit himself. One concept is perhaps it's not God limiting himself. Maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe God let so much of himself into man when he created him, thus he breathed the Holy Spirit into our face and we became a living being, that he let so much of himself pass into us. The relationship of love demands vulnerability. Loving my wife makes me vulnerable to her. I was abused as a kid. Praise God, I was never sexually abused. Uh, my dad's no longer living, and he was a Christian before he died. But he used to beat the tar out of me. And uh, it was rough. It was real rough, rough. He beat me and beat my mom. And, you know, I'm talking broken bones. I'm talking, it was, it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty pathetic. Um, I struggled with that. And uh, I, I hated him for a long time. I also had hard feelings against my mother, and I just hated the world. And when I, I, I moved out uh, the house officially, when I was 18 years old, on my 18th birthday, I left home. I joined the Marine Corps. I wanted to get as far away from Muncie, Indiana, and the state altogether, no offense, as I could. I moved to California, and I, I just cut them off. I cut them off, because it's easy, it's easy not to experience pain when I hate your guts. I'm telling you from first experience, okay? The amazing thing about him is he never cuts you off. He never cuts you off. It's easier when someone hurts you to cut them off than when they hurt you to still love them. Love creates vulnerability. And God loved you so much. He destined, I believe with everything in me, that God created us not to be observers of him, but partakers of his divine nature, which Paul said. You and I were literally to be involved, involved in his very heart. And when we fell into sin, he could have cut us off, but he didn't. He extended us grace. Wesley called it prevenient grace. And he maintained, now think about this, he loved us so much that he maintained that relationship. And, and what he desired in us, we see in Jesus, which was the oneness of God and man being one, inviting us into that. Now, that has phenomenal, that has phenomenal repercussions to it. I want to walk you through some of it. Again, it's looking at Genesis, which you're already there, Genesis chapter 1. I found it interesting that, again, God did not, now think about this, God did not create you and I, <laughs> this is so neat, God did not create you and I to be just observers. I think a perfect example of this would be in church. Sometimes I'm up here and I'm sweating and spitting and jumping around and everyone's looking at him going, that boy has way too much coffee in his veins. <laughs> it's not coffee, it's Red Bull. But the point that I'm getting to is, <laughs> no, it's not Red Bull either. It's the point that I'm getting to is sometimes I think, I'm not a performer. Okay? I'm not a performer. And I'm certainly not an entertainer. And I'm not here to entertain you. I believe that uh, services 
uh, like these, I believe you participate in the service. I believe you participate in the service. I believe you are contributing to the atmosphere in this place. Okay? And I believe that the whole idea of quenching the spirit happens as a body kind of thing. Okay? So there's a participation in this. I do not believe that God created you to sit back in your seat and watch him work. I don't believe that. I believe you and I were created, created to be in oneness in relationship with him, to be involved and participate in what he is doing. That's why how God created us. Now, you would say, where, in the, where did you come up with that idea? Well, let me show you. Calm down. Genesis chapter 1. It says, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule after all he's made, up to verse 26. He says, I got an idea. Okay? And I got an idea. So God gets together, and you can do that when you're three. He gets together, and he says, hey, let's let man rule over, and let's give him authority over everything we just created. He says, let man rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over the livestock and over the earth, and over all creation that move along the ground. Let's let him rule over it and have authority over it. So he created God. Now you follow that, and how? what's the extent of that? Look into chapter 2, this is neat, look into chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord, uh, and follow me, because I'm going to jump a few verses ahead, but it says, the Lord God, verse 15, chapter 2, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now you understand, nothing has sprung up yet, because man was going to participate in that thing. Now could God have done that, and could have God have said, hey, pop up corn? Yes, he could have done that, but he didn't. In fact, you know what? He didn't even call it corn yet. Go down to verse 19. Verse 19, it says, Now the Lord God had formed one, uh, formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. <laughs> he didn't name them. He said, I got an idea. Let's bring all of creation before man. Let's just see what he calls them. I wonder what he'll call this one. Man says, cow. God said, oh, I was thinking cow. <laughs> man participated in that. In fact, if you follow that on, he brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So man participated in the createdness of God. Wow. See, it wasn't the kind of thing where I was totally misled. This is old news to you. But I was totally misled on this. See, God did not create all of creation and then dump man and said, well, get to work. He didn't do that. Literally, man was to play a key functional role to the extent of when man fell in sin, what fell into frustration? The earth. All things subject, there was all kinds of repercussions to sin. I believe that. Okay? So man was to participate in that. Now you follow the extent of that. You see Jesus, who again is the perfected Adam. Okay? He is how Adam was supposed to be. He was in oneness of God. And he participated in the salvation as a man. Man, obviously Jesus was fully God. But the man, the human nature in which he took on, participated in the salvation of man. And you would say, how? The cross. And Jesus told his followers, listen to this, guys. He said, hey, ask anything in my name, and it will be given to you. I can't tell you where I run with that one. That literally, again, it's not like 
He does his part, I do my part. See, it's, I don't have a part. It's not a marble in a jar kind of image stamped in me. It's response language. It's I was created for relational capacity, so God speaks to me, and I respond, and he takes my response, which has the fingerprints of my, you know, of my character and my personality, sometimes my looks, all of that, and he takes that and he grasps that into his plan. And you would say, give me an example of that. My son, CJ, I didn't create him, but he looks just like me. He looks just like me, man. Okay, he's got a couple features of my wife. <laughs> but he's, hey, he came out of the womb and you can tell. He looks just like me. God said, be, be fruitful and multiply. And I responded. Praise the Lord. And I responded. And he took literally an involvement. Think about this. I was involved in that. And literally, he took, see, my son's got my features. He's got elements of my personality. He laughs at all my jokes. Okay? We, we, we like each other. We get along together. I'm not, I'm, I, in the name of Jesus, I was not created to be an observer. I was created to be a participator. A participator in his kingdom. Are you listening to me? A participator. Not an observer. Now, there are several, obviously, other passages just like this throughout the New Testament, for instance. Paul says stuff like, approach the throne of grace boldly. Approach it boldly as a son. He also says stuff like, you are seated in Christ in the heavenly realms. As Jesus was a son, you're a son. And there's illustrations of this. And Jesus talking about who he gives illustrations of earthly fathers and earthly sons. He says, hey, what father would give his son a snake when he asked him for a, I don't remember it, but it was something like that. Hey, what, what father would do that? Well, your heavenly father wouldn't either, man. And Jesus was the example. Is, it, is this sinking in? Control your excitement. It's, it's absolutely... I mean, think about this. This is absolutely extraordinary. Now, you take this and you would say, well, hey... Have you seen this in the book of Revelation? Yeah. And again, listen to how strong this is. Chapter 2, the, uh, the church of Thyatira. Look with me. This is incredible. I don't know what you do with some of this. <laughs> so I'm going to throw this out for, for your suggestions, which means you can jump me after the service on, on it if you want. But the church of Thyatira, this is what Jesus, listen to this, this is what Jesus says to us. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Jesus says, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And you're saying, what kind of authority is that? And he quotes the messianic title. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. The same authority that's given in Christ, we're going to be seated with him, and we're going to have that authority. And you go on. He will rule them like an iron scepter. That's the passage. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's, what, here's the picture that's being painted. The function of the Holy Spirit is obviously to take from the Father and reveal in Christ who we are called to be. He's revealing the Godhead. He's revealing God to man. He's also resourcing man. He's resourcing us to live the life he's called us to live. But he's also literally in that resource and in that unveiling of who we are called to be in Christ, he is taking our response, our response to him, and in grace we are engrafted into his plan. I found it interesting that I am to participate as the head of my household in my wife's salvation. I'm to wash her with the water of the word. 
I am to demonstrate to my son the kind of man that he's supposed to be. I'm teaching him by my actions. I'm participating in how he's supposed to treat a woman. Think about that. He could have chosen anybody to raise my son. He didn't choose Pastor Larry. I would have chose Pastor Larry. Okay? I'm telling hey, I, he didn't choose him. He chose me. He didn't choose my son to look like you. He didn't choose him to have your personality. He said, before the foundations of the world, Jeremiah Bullock, I knew you. I appointed you an evangelist. And I have put you in oneness with your wife. And she will conceive and give birth to a son. And I'm going to take some of you and some of your wife and your response to me and I'm going to ingrain that and I'm going to engraft that and you are included and your fingerprints are left on my creation. <laughs> Just because of your response. Now, you know what's interesting? You know what the scripture says about not responding? When God comes to you and you are born in the image of God, created in the image of God, do you know what he calls not responding? When God speaks to you and wants to use you in his creation and you say no thank you, he calls that blasphemy. Oh, that blasphemy. You can't be forgiven of that. It's looking at him saying, no thanks. I want to quench Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Read that. The quenching of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking. No thanks. I'm, I've come to the revival. Get off my back. I'm watching, making sure he doesn't say anything wrong. There's that mentality versus a participation in of movement among Are you participating? I find it amazing that God creates uh, brothers of mine, friends of mine who go to Olivet, and guys that I'm going to walk with in ministry for the next 30 years of my, of my life, unless they flake out and run off and don't get in ministry. But, I mean, guys that I love dearly, and I share my, I'm going to walk with them. And um, I find it amazing the uh, quality of guys my own age in whom I'm going to participate with. Isn't that phenomenal? Don't you just want to participate? Don't you just want to go down to your job and say, oh, use me. Use me. And I do. I believe when we get to heaven, I believe our fingerprints, along with his, are going to be all over this place. Just I want that tonight. I want to respond tonight to your movement. I want to respond, Jesus, why you would choose have anything of Jeremiah replicated in this world is a mystery to me. I consider myself a mess most of the time. I believe that you see in me, Jesus, a potential, a capacity for relationship with you that I missed. I believe you see in me, even before the foundations of the world, a capacity for relationship with you. And the ramifications of that is a little 20-month-old named C.J., He's got my ears. He's got my hairline. He's got my heart. I look at that little guy. I want to respond to you, Jesus. I want you to pull your life through me. You've chosen me to be the Father. And whether I like it or not, in rebellion or in response and submission to you, either way, I'm going to affect that boy. Because I was created in your image to be utilized, to be indwelt, to be resourced, 
to bring about all that you've dreamed. You've included me in that plan. Jesus, I believe there are those tonight who are here that love you. But Jesus, they're just, they haven't, they haven't been responding like you know that they should and like they know that they should. They've been holding back. I wonder if there are those tonight who are quenching the Holy Spirit in their life. Who are living with a rebellious, blasphemous spirit. I don't want that in my life, Jesus. We want to seek you. We want to respond to you tonight. Would you move? Would you come in the way that only you can? And we'll respond. Would you expose us, Jesus? Would you expose the areas of our life to us where we're holding you back? Where we're not responding? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I can't tell you what this passage has been doing to me in my life. I don't want to be a hindrance in the church anymore. I want to be a participant. I want to say, here I am, Lord, send me. Don't leave me out of what you're doing. We're going to be quiet over the next few moments, I think, unless someone wants to come and sing and lead worship, and I'm open to that. I come under the authority of that. But I want to encourage you in the next moment, if he's speaking to you tonight and you haven't been responding, would you respond? And let's let him have his way.